Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, and I'm one of the hosts of the Nailed Ortho Podcast. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our orthopedic and training exam review featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine, and you are now tuned into another episode of our Basic Science. Again, if this is your first time listening, welcome to the podcast. If you're a returning listener, welcome back to the podcast. We hope by now that you have went and left us a five-star review. That would be so helpful. You don't even understand. Please go do that. We hope that you are also following us on social media at Nailed It Ortho, and that's going to be on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we're going to start, we're working on some cool things. We're working on getting some videos and some surgical techniques and different things of that sort. So if you want to stay in the loop, please go and do so and follow us. Uh, Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. But what about like neuropathic arthropathy or Charcot joint disease? What is what is that and how does it typically present? Yeah, so this is going to be kind of arthritis that is going to be caused by a disturbed sensory innervation. Uh, and there are, there are different causes, which we will uh, talk about very shortly. Um, but again, so this is going to be arthritis caused by a disturbed sensory innervation, you know, to the joint or to the limb. And how these present, these are going to be your swollen red joints that are actually typically painless, uh, but the patient may complain of some feelings of instability. So, they won't complain too much of pain, but they may say their, their knees feel unstable. You know, it's red, it's swollen. And on x-rays, when you look at it, you'd be like, man, that looks bad. You know, that's the first thing that I think of. So you pretty much have severe joint destruction. You know, you're, you're going to see some pieces of bone in the fibrous tissue. So these are all things that lead you towards, you know, this being a neuropathic arthropathy um, instead of something like osteoarthritis. Now, what are some of the, the causes of these, you know, kind of Charcot joint disease? Uh, obviously, the main one to know is diabetes. And you'll see that in the foot and ankle. And um, for for all the residents out there uh, listening in on this, you'll you'll get consulted or you'll see a referral in the, in the office of either like your foot and ankle surgeons or just a general uh, orthopedist who, I mean, the foot just looks terrible on x-rays. They have severe pes planal valgus. They'll have dislocation of the talus on the navicular. It'll protrude through the plantar aspect of the feet. And so knowing diabetes and knowing uh, absence of sensation with that uh, uh, SEMS-Weinstein test. Um, but then one, we actually just diagnosed this in clinic is actually a, a fairly interesting uh, somebody uh, so for those of you out there that are just tuning in, I'm an orthopedic oncology fellow here at Emory, and um, we got a, a patient for uh, shoulder mass and mm. shoulder uh, discomfort, decreased mobility, all this stuff, and, and a, a native of uh, Haiti, and she presented and uh, through using the interpreters, like, yeah, just progressive loss of motion. We get a, an x-ray and, uh, it's just absolute destruction of the glenohumeral joint. Like there is no proximal humerus, there is no glenoid. And, um, 
we were looking at it and like, man, she, she doesn't have diabetes. She doesn't have any endocrine abnormalities. And so we sent her for an MRI of her cervical spine and she had syringomyelia, mm. which, um, to which can lead to upper extremity Charcot joints. She also had a really bad Charcot elbow of the same extremity, which was, I mean, just absolutely destroyed. So syringomyelia in the upper extremities is common than diabetes in the lower extremities. And then some of the less common things, but if you're doing a medical mission or a surgical mission abroad, you're looking for like leprosy, tabes dorsalis, and, and some of those kind of more zebra-like uh, diagnoses out there um, that where you can see these short coat joints. And so uh, I briefly spoke about it, but what is syringomyelia? Yeah, so that's when you have a, a cyst in the cervical spinal cord, and we'll touch a little bit more about this when we actually do our spine talk, uh, which I'm, I'm so looking forward to. Uh, but anyways, uh, we the serial myelin is going to be when you have a cyst in the cervical spine cord, and just kind of very similar to what you just said. So these patients can have you know early pain or temperature sensory de- deficits over their uh, shoulders or arm and their back, and then later on can kind of present how you just said with kind of severe joint destruction. And this is the uh, most common cause of an upper extremity neuropathic joint. So pretty much the presentation that you just gave that patient that came in. Now, kind of just trying to, you know, figure out some of these high points when we see things, kind of these buzzwords. Um, A lot of these, I don't know really if they'll be tested, but it'd be good to know about. And it's kind of a review of of some of, uh, of med school from back in the day. Uh, but what condition is noted by osteoarthritis with some chondrocalcinosis? So you get an x-ray and you look and you see some calcifications of that cartilage and black urine. So what is what is that condition known for? Or what is that condition? Uh, that is called alcaptonuria. And if the uh, OITE test uh, writers are, are mean enough, they'll talk about <laughs> it being an autosomal recessive defect. Uh, uh, homogentistic acid oxidase uh, defect. So it's autosomal recessive. It's homogentistic acid oxidase, which means that there's excessive homogentistic acid, uh, which is deposited in the joints. And uh, that can lead to stiff cartilage and early arthritis and uh, very thin discs uh, looking at the spine. And um, it's one of those things that uh, if they give you either a picture of a joint with arthritis, chondral calcinosis, and then they'll show you like a specimen cup with kind of cola-colored or black urine, that's the alcaptonuria, and it's autosomal recessive. And don't ask me how to remember it outside of that because I'm out yeah, of luck. Just rote memorization. That's exactly. all that is. <laughs> but... Um, I, I guess moving forward in some of these kind of uh, genetic uh, causes of arthritis and other systemic symptoms. Um, what condition is noted by like a Caucasian with hand arthritis, skin hyperpigmentation, and diabetes? Yeah, so that is going to be keywords for hemochromatosis. And I, I remember just a quick side note, I used to watch House back in the day, and I swear this was a differential on every single patient, which was hemochromatosis. So that, like that, that, got drilled into my brain when I finally learned what it was. I'm like, no, none of these people have hemochromatosis. But um, anyways, um, so, 
Yeah. <laughs> lupus is another, everyone has lupus. Yep, on that everybody show. has lupus on this show. Yeah, that's correct. And so uh, hemochromatosis, again, is, you know, once my Caucasian, hand arthritis, hyper, skin hyperpigmentation, diabetes, and kind of think of that classic, uh, that, that triad, or, you know, when you hear bronze diabetes, you think of liver cirrhosis, um, diabetes mellitus, as well as skin hyperpigmentation. So this is going to be a defect in the HF. E gene is going to be a C28Y mutation. And for this, you know, osteoarthritis of the hands are going to be common in patients with hemochromatosis. And what you look for are kind of like these hook-like osteophytes on the second and third metacarpal heads. If you Google a picture of it, it, it literally just looks like the hook on the metacarpal head. And so for screening for this, you know, you're going to get a serum sample and you're going to see a high serum ferritin. Um, over 200, um, and then you're also going to have a high transferrin saturation greater than 45%. So again, that's going to be hemochromatosis. Now, what about, now we just, just talked about this, what about hey, it? Uh, I, know. <laughs> I didn't even know this was coming up. <laughs> uh, well, what about, you know, what condition is going to be noted in a 35-year-old female with polyarthralgia, fatigue, as well as skin rashes around her face? Yeah, so that is actually going to be what I just talked about, and that's lupus. You're going to see that kind of uh, non-erosive arthritis, which is different than, let's say, like a, like a rheumatoid, which is very erosive. You're going to see like the butterfly malar rash. You'll have kidney problems. Um, hopefully, this has already been diagnosed by the time they see you, but again, the OIT likes to test on facts that um, may that some of these practitioners may have encountered in practice, and they think that uh, young budding orthopedic surgeons should know about. <laughs> and so, lupus maybe you might be the first person that see this that sees the patient because they have arthritis, and so you're going to be sending them obviously to uh, uh, like endocrinology. Uh, and all of these like genetic testing and all this stuff, but you're going to get like anti-nuclear antibody testing, anti-double-stranded DNA, um, and anti-histone antibodies. Um, how often we're going to see this, who knows, but it's good to know that the things that you're looking for for lupus are that ANA, anti-double-stranded DNA, uh, and the anti-histone antibodies um, are, are good tests for lupus. And I guess just kind of going in and summarizing a few others, uh, like autoimmune disorders, um, what are some other types of autoimmune disorders and their distinguishing features? Yeah, so if you think of things like Strogen syndrome, uh, that's going to be kind of characterized by, you'll have, they'll give you a patient that has something with polyarthralgia, but they'll give you like a dry mouth or, you know, dry eyes. And, um, and just note that those are going to be positive SSA and SSB. Uh, those are going to be the, the labs that you're going to see in that. So again, Stroden syndrome, polyarthralgia is supposed to dry mouth and dry eyes. Another one is going to be sclerodoma. Um, so when you think of that, this is, these are patients that may have that kind of calcinosis as well as an indurated skin. And a lot of times they, they have Raynaud's uh, syndrome. So I don't think they'll necessarily say Raynaud's syndrome, but they'll say, oh, their fingers, uh, their fingers necessarily, you know, bother them sometimes in, in different weather, for example, their fingers may change colors or something that clues you in towards Raynaud syndrome. And in within scleroderma, you have a localized and you have a diffuse. Uh, a localized is when you have positive crest 
anti-centromere antibodies and diffuse is going to be uh, diffuse scleroderma is going to be positive anti-DNA topoisomerase one antibodies. Again, this is like a, a, a brief um, brief time in the time machine look back to medical school. Again, I'm hoping that this is not going to be asked, but uh, it is. And again, we just kind of just briefly touched the surface on all this. So if you really want to learn more, you're going to kind of have to go and read into it. Um, but continuing on, uh, what is what condition is going to be uh, noted in a 35-year-old male with back pain and morning stiffness? Maybe some hip pain every now and then. Uh, that's going to be most commonly ankylosing spondylitis. And uh, you're going to, uh, obviously, this, honestly, this will be tested at some point during your five years. Um, maybe not on every single OITE, but they will test either on a some sort of ankylosing spondylitis topic. And um, you might get a picture of that bamboo spine uh, on x-ray. You'll see some hip arthritis. You'll see that uh, pelvis x-ray that has a lot of uh, sclerotic changes in the uh, sacroiliac joints indicating sacroiliitis. And routinely, it, it'll be uh, HLA B27 as an answer. Uh, so there, 95% of those patients are positive for HLA B27. And it's just one of those, you look at the x-ray, you see the bamboo spine of the lumbar spine, you see the sacroiliitis, and just look for something that either says ankylosing spondylitis or HLA B27. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I've yeah. seen sometimes those things, all, like their SI joints almost look fused, you know, on those yeah. x-rays. And uh, another uh, point to that, that will will likely touch more on in the spine talk is that they also have some spine manifestations or in a C-spine of uh, ankylosing spondylitis and kind of differentiating that between dish. Um, but again, we will, we will cover that in spine. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, that was a good. That was definitely a good talk on ankylosing spondylitis. Um, so uh, let's see, let's say you get a referral. There's a 55 year old Caucasian female she has bilateral shoulder and pelvic morning pain that lasts only about an hour or so. But once she gets going, it, it starts to uh, improve. Uh, she has some anorexia and then uh, just some vague symptoms, fevers, headaches, general fatigue. And uh, the referral comes with uh, some lab values and it shows like an elevated, a slightly elevated ESR. Yeah, so again, this is back into uh, med school. This is going to be that polymyalgia rheumatica. And I, the thing that just reminded me with this, there the buzzwords that I look for was like the elevated ESR and then like the older female with just like pain uh, that doesn't get better within 30 minutes. You know, it may last a little bit longer in the morning. And the thing about polymyalgia rheumatica, it's going to be associated with giant cell arthritis. Um, and, you know, one of the things or big things I remember, at least from med school, was that if they have temporal arthritis, that a temporal artery biopsy may be needed um, to kind of help prevent against blindness. So that's one of the big things with that. So again, it's associated with giant cell arthritis as well as other vasculitis um, conditions. So that is a quick thing on polymyalgia rheumatica. Now let us uh, continue on into, at least this is going to be something uh, a little bit more high yield, um, but what is a common just presentation of a patient that has rheumatoid arthritis? Yeah, so rheumatoid arthritis is 
probably the most applicable applicable to us as orthopedic surgeons. Um, and it's, it's good to know these presentations. So uh, most commonly going to be a female, uh, they're going to be kind of middle age, uh, like forties, fifties, they're going to have some morning joint pain and it's going to be multiple symmetric joints. And they may talk about, uh, like bilateral hand pain and the, the hand pain is going to be primarily in the metacarpophalangeal joints, but, um, uh, it's good to just know that kind of common presentation so that you can see these patients uh, early and treat them uh, accordingly. But what is really the pathophysiology behind rheumatoid arthritis? Yeah, so if you, you know, if you go and you read the books, and again, there are entire books on rheumatoid arthritis. So we, again, are just touching the surface. Um, but um, a little bit more about the pathophysiology physiology behind rheumatoid arthritis is that you kind of have an antigen, uh, which is unknown. It's unknown what the antigen is or what this antigen kind of triggers a genetically susceptible person. So, you know, thought process, you know, smoking could be one of the things or a lot of different things of what this antigen um, trigger could be. And so it triggers a genetically susceptible person, for example, a patient with the HLA-DR4 um, gene. And this leads to there are citrullinated proteins create autoantigens. So again, this is an autoimmune disorder. So these citrullinated proteins create autoantigens. You have your B cells that are going to now make anti-citrullinated protein and rheumatoid factor. So if you ever need to, you know, you do labs and you're drawing labs, those are going to be the um, those are going to be the labs. Anti-CCP or citrullinated protein, as well as a patient's going to have a positive rheumatoid factor because those B cells are making those antibodies. But when we kind of look a little bit more into it, you have these CD4 positive T lymphocytes are going to infiltrate around the joint tissues and they're going to release inflammatory cytokines. And a couple of the different cytokines that they release, you have IL-1, TNF-alpha, and then you have IL-6. So kind of just breaking those down with these, uh, with these inflammatory cytokines. When you have IL-1 release, this can lead to inflammation, um, matrix destruction, and this is going to be the main thing that cartilage, that, that destroys the cartilage. So again, IL-6 is going to be the main thing that destroys the cartilage. And I always see, um, oh, I just, I just mispronounced, IL-1 is the main thing that destroys cartilage. So IL-1 uh, leads to inflammation as well as matrix destruction, and it's going to be the main thing that destroys cartilage. I was saying uh, TNF-alpha, this is going to be something that activates synovial fibroblasts and it's going to drive osteoclastogenesis. So it's going to provide, it's going to drive these osteoclasts to be, um, to be made. And also, um, also with that is uh, when you have the fibroblasts, you have fibroblasts, these type B fibroblasts are going to be, are going to release cadherin 11, which mediates my fibroglass migration to this cartilage. They're also going to release MMPs or mat uh, MMPs or uh, metallo uh, matrix proteinases, rank ligand. Again, these are all different types of enzymes. And you're going to have IL-6 that's going to stimulate immunoglobulin from the plasma cells. So again, big picture, you have an antigen. It's going to trigger a, genet a genetically susceptible person. You're going to have these proteins that are going to make autoantigens. Your B cells are going to make anti-CCP and, and rheumatoid factor. These T4 lymphocytes um, infiltrate the joint tissues and releases IL-1, which is the main thing that destroys the cartilage. It's going to release TNF-alpha, which is going to activate the synovial fibroblasts. Uh, when those fibroblasts are, are, um, are activated, those fibroblasts are going to release MMPs. 
Um, they're going to release Cadherin 11, which is going to bring some more fibroblasts to the cartilage. They're going to release rank ligand as well, which is going to help um, stimulate kind of those osteoclasts. And you have IL-6 that's going to stimulate immunoglobulin from the plasma cells. So, you know, these synovial cells, they, they invade that cartilage panis and just release these MMPs. It's kind of causes all this joint damage. Now, what are some of the bony uh, changes seen in RA and Y? And I know we didn't include all of them on here, but just what are, what's, what's one of the bony changes that are going to be seen? Yeah, you're really looking for the periarticular erosions. And uh, that kind of goes back to all the stuff that you were really talking about. So you get that rank L released by the fibroblasts. You get the activation of the osteoclast, the osteoclastogenesis, uh, increased osteoclast function because of that rank ligand. And um, not only that, but then you have like the T and B cells, the kind of uh, the lymphocytes activated, the macrophages activated. So you're just having a lot of inflammation from all kind of corners of the inflammatory cascade uh, acting on these joints and these joints are just getting attacked. And so you see these periarticular erosions. If you haven't seen a hand x-ray with a rheumatoid arthritis patient, Google it right now. You will never forget it. The next time you (laughs) see it, you see an x-ray like that, you'll be like rheumatoid. I got it. This is easy. But um, it's really those erosions and that cartilage panis that you that you talked about before and uh, so we we've kind of now we have gone over the pathophysiology behind it and you did a great job uh, kind of going through that and rewind and re-listen to it multiple times they hammer it home multiple Um, we know what the bony changes look like on the x-rays and so they're gonna the real thing that they're gonna deal with is like what what are some of the treatment options for me, Doc? What, what can I do? Yeah, and some of the things, you know, these early symptoms, NSAIDs can help with some of these early symptoms. Um, you can also have low-dose steroids, but the main things are going to be the DMARs, the kind of these disease-modifying um, anti-rheumological drugs. The DMARs are going to be the big things that have made a lot of um, changes in uh, the treatment for rheumatoid arthritis. Um, you know, these DMARs take, you know, around two to six months to work. Um, but what are what are some of the, D, there are a lot of different DMARs, but what are some of the ones that can be continued throughout surgery? I know this is always a, a high topic or something to know about. So what is what are some of the DMARs that can be continued throughout surgery? Yeah, and DMAR is disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. I think that's what they stand for. At least that's what I think they stand for. Um, but you have these DMARs. Um, the most common ones you'll see are methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, and sulfasalazine. And all of these, um, I think that there's a, a, a paper yeah. that discusses all of this stuff, but... Um, yeah, go for it. So yeah, the, it's a study from 2014 in the... Uh, it's called the World Journal of Orthopedics, but it's titled uh, Perioperative Management of the Patient with Rheumatoid Arthritis. And they kind of go over everything for the perioperative management. And they also go over the, the drugs, the biologics, the DMARDs, all of that stuff. But uh, in brief, methotrexate, which is a folate analog, you can continue throughout surgery. Hydroxychloroquine, you can continue and sulfasalazine, you can continue, but not all of them can be continued. And 
Um, one thing you want to look for with like methotrexate is if they're having renal problems or alcohol abuse or severe diabetes, which hopefully your rheumatoid patients care about their health enough to really not have that alcohol abuse in there. But you want to hold it pre-op if they have those sort of things, because it can be detrimental to them in the perioperative period. But um, so the the drugs that should be stopped prior to surgery are are what essentially yeah so you have your tnf alpha inhibitors it's going to be like your atanasept your infliximab adulamab um, you have your il1 inhibitors again these are if you just think about it, these are some of the same drugs that are going to be used um, against a lot of those if you think about the pathophysiology that we we're just talking about and all the different um, cytokines and modulators are trying to work against those. So the IL-1 inhibitor is going to be anakinra. Um, so that's going to be, that should be stopped prior to surgery as well, again, as those TNF-alpha inhibitors. Um, and, you know, the, the dosing or at least when to stop it, uh, the papers say, you know, at least one dose interval should elapse before surgery, which can be different for all of these different um, medications. I guess generally you could say about two weeks or so, I guess if they, if they give you an answer on a, on a test, but again, it's, it's all different because um, all of the half-lives of these different um, uh, medications are a little bit different. Uh, and another one that you should stop before surgery is leflunamide, uh, which inhibits permidine. So again, things you should stop are the TNF-alpha inhibitors, the IL-1 inhibitors, as well as leflunamide and the things you can continue, just like you just said, methotrexate. I think that was a big one um, some while ago that people thought that they had to stop taking, but no, you can continue methotrexate. Um, so those are big ones. Uh, and, and we, we talked about this, uh, not too long ago, but we can just talk about it again. Uh, but what are some of the cytokines that are going to be commonly seen with these inflammatory reactions? Uh, yep. IL-1 and IL-6, those, those may or may not show up on a test, but, um, the, uh, they definitely are important. IL-6, uh, interestingly, causes liver uh, ESR and CRP release. So when we're checking the ESR and CRP values, um, IL-6 is one of the causes for that to be elevated in the uh, bloodstream and, and elevated on our lab values. Obviously, TNF-alpha, and that's why we have a lot of drugs geared towards TNF-alpha is um, they are going to be anti-inflammatory because they block that. And then some other ones are these toll-like receptors or TLRs, and you'll see them upregulated in things like osteoarthritis. And what they do is they turn on the innate immune system. So the macrophages, um, the uh, other parts that are part of like the innate immune system. Um, and uh, so what are some of these anti-cytokine drugs uh, that are coming out? Yeah, so some of these anti-cytokine drugs, uh, one is going to be, again, this IL-1 blocker, which we talked about earlier, which is the main thing that destroys cartilage. So again, think IL-1 destroys cartilage. So the blocker is going to be, um, any care is going to be that receptor antagonist. You have your TNF-alpha blocker, so you have ertanicept, which acts uh, as a TNF receptor. You have infliximab, which is that kind of chimeric IgG, um, and that chimeric just means it's, the molecule is going to be made up from a domain of another species, so like it can be made up from a domain of a rat or, or something like that sort. And then you have adulamab, which is a monoclonal antibody, and this is kind of just brings you again back to 
med school, if you look at the end of the word, MAB stands for kind of monoclonal antibodies. I think XIMAB, I think stands for like a chimeric um, monoclonal antibody and Ertanercept is gonna act as a TNF receptor. Um, so these are gonna, again, block uh, TNF alpha. You have IL-6 blocker, which is gonna be tocilzumab. Uh, I may have butchered that name, but again, it's gonna to be tocilzumab. Uh, and then again, that's gonna be for IL-6. So IL-1 is Anikira, Anikinra, IL-6 is tocilzumab. <laughs> and uh, the side effects, you're gonna have an increase uh, in the risk of atypical infections. So that is a side effect of these medications. Um, and one more thing, I guess, so what, what, what is going to be seen with where particle osteolysis, for example, you know, like, you know, it could be something from, we'll touch more on it when we talk about total joints, we'll say polyethylene or some type of debris is in a joint. And, you know, they always talk about these different, um, these different things. So what are some of those things with uh, particle wear osteolysis? Yeah. And it really goes, comes down to the IL-1, IL-6 and rank L uh, being expressed. And what happens is um, when the uh, polyethylene, just so you guys don't think we're trying to pull a fast one on you and switch topics too quick, we're still talking about these inflammatory cytokines. <laughs> um, the What it comes down to is really those. And so when you have a joint where some of the polyethylene particles are uh, being released, let's say it's, an, it's either an old poly or a malpositioned hip or something like that, where they're getting eccentric wear and you're getting these small particles dispersed into the joint. The innate immune system is going to recognize those as kind of like a foreign invader. And they're going to try and phagocytose these. They're going to release these IL-1, IL-6 and rank L to help control this foreign intruder into the joint. The downside to it is because of that extreme inflammatory response and the activation of osteoclast through rank uh, ligand, you get um, kind of periarticular osteolysis. And that can really be damaging if it's enough that it causes the implant to become unstable. And then you're dealing with a uh, uh, a loose aseptic uh, acetabular component or a femoral slash tibial component, whether you're talking about a total hip or total knee. And uh, then you got a, a, a different set of problems. And so um, the key things with this osteolysis is look for inflammatory cytokines in the answer or rank ligand, because those are the things that stimulate the osteoclast to cause this uh, osteolysis. Yeah. But um uh, a few more things. You're getting all the long questions or long topics today. Oh, but, we got uh, some more. <laughs> what are what are some uh, what are other types of arthritis that are not as common but frequently tested, and some of their distinguishing features? Yeah, and, and just to reiterate for the third time in the past 30 minutes, man, we're getting again. We're just kind of touching the the tip of the iceberg with a lot of this stuff. So there's a lot more information um, out there. There are whole books on just uh, these topics, um, but. Anyway, just to kind of give you the high points of different types of arthritis. So if you at least you see these buzzwords, it can, it can ring a, a light or a bell in your head. Um, so if you have a patient that comes in 
and they have a bunch of skin lesions. They have lesions on their their nails. Um, they have you know a little of a sausage digit. They have pain in their DIP joints. Um, and you know you get an X-ray and you see a what we call pencil in a cup deformity. That is going to be something that is going to clue you in towards psoriatic arthritis. Okay, again, big thing with, you know, like psoriatic arthritis is going to be skin lesions. I think almost all of them have nail lesions um, and some DIP pain or dorsal uh, DIP in the, in the uh, distal interphalangeal um, joint pain. Another one is if you have a patient that comes in and they have conjunctivitis, urethritis, and they have pain in their knee or a mono or oligoarthritis, that is something that is going to be considered or you want to think of reactive arthritis. And I remember in uh, med school, the thing was you can't see, can't pee or bend a knee. And that's all things that remind you towards reactive arthritis. It's going to be that conjunctivitis, urethritis, and um, uh, that monoarthritis or oligoarthritis. And these can occur anytime a patient has a recent uh, articular, uh, like extra articular infections, so whenever you get a history on these patients or you're seeing them in your clinic and, you know, they fill out the form and they just tell you, oh, they just had um, chlamydia for uh, you know, a month or two that went undiagnosed or, you know, gonorrhea, salmonella, shigella. It's going to typically happen with these like intracellular um, organisms. So again, any patient that have recent extra articular infections, you know, one of the things you want to think of or have on your list of differential is going to be reactive arthritis. And again, that's going to be for real life too, as well. Um, another thing, if you have a patient that has migratory arthritis, so they have, you know, they may have pains in their knees and as well as their shoulder or their elbows, they have parasternal pain. So they have, you know, sometimes have some pain around their chest area. And then they also have um, some ear, nose, or throat issues. So they may have like a saddle nose deformity or auricle thickening, thickening, or you know some type of trachea involvement. This is going to be relapsing polychondritis. So again, relapsing polychondritis. This is that migratory arthritis with ENT involvement and parasternal pain. Um, the thing is to know with relapsing polychondritis is that they have antibodies to type 2 collagen as well as matrilin 1. So antibodies to type 2 collagen and matrilin 1. And uh, one of these last ones, so if you have a patient that lives in the northeast of the U.S. or the Pacific Northwest who is coming in, you know, they've just kind of had this chronic knee pain that's been going on for a couple of months. Um, you know, they tell you that early on, a couple of months ago, they had this rash on their on their back or on their arms, kind of look like a target. That should kind of, again, be a little buzzword that could clue you in towards Lyme arthritis. So again, early things with Lyme arthritis is, you know, they get, they live in their location, you know, in the U.S. Northeast. It may or may not have gotten bit by a bug. They had this early erythema migracans or that target lesion. And then one of these later symptoms is going to be, you know, this arthritis. And then, you know, as time goes on, they can have more neurological symptoms. Uh, one of the things being Bell's palsy, if you remember that from medical school, and how to treat these. So patients less than eight years old, you treat them with three to six weeks of amoxicillin. Uh, for patients greater than um, eight years old, you can treat them with some doxycycline. So those are, uh, you know, kind of key things to be on the lookout for, keywords to be on the lookout for when you're thinking of the different types of arthritis and some of the distinguishing fingers 
uh, here we go. I have a, we've got a long one for you. Uh, what are some uh, what are some conditions that are going to be seen in young patients with arthritis? And I know they all kind of form under this umbrella, and then there's little different different legs. But what do we? What are those? Uh, yeah. So um, you're going to have like juvenile idiopathic arthritis, which is really you're looking for a patient who's under 16 years of age. Um, they're going to have persistent joint pain and swelling greater than six weeks is also a key. Uh, diagnostic uh, feature here. And you can have oligoarticular uh, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, which is um, typically less than eight years old. It's asymmetric, um, uh, painless uveitis on eye exam, uh, maybe uh, very similar to that reactive arthritis that you were talking about. Um, but, uh, oh, and also thank you for calling it reactive arthritis rather than Reiter's syndrome, because we all know that <laughs> Dr. Uh, Hans Reiter was uh, convicted of war crimes in Nazi Germany. So it's, Ooh, no, longer didn't called know Reiter. Yeah, it's no longer called Reiter's syndrome. It's uh, reactive arthritis. Um, uh, you have, so it's oligoarticular GIA. Then you have seronegative polyarticular GIA, which uh, again, is that under 16 year old patient, they may be commonly eight to 12 years old in the question stem, yet large joint involvement. So we're talking hips, knees, um, but they're going to be negative for rheumatoid fracture. And that's why they are seronegative polyarticular, whereas the converse to that is seropositive polyarticular, where uh, again, it's going to be that teenage age, um, typically in females, fairly aggressive presentation. They're going to be positive for the rheumatoid factor and positive for HLA DR4. Um, you also have uh, something called still disease or systemic onset, um, which is uh, kind of uh, discussed in a question stem as like diurnal fevers, lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, they might have a macular rash or salmon macular rash. Um, and it's really through the macrophage activation system. And this actually can be fatal. So it's one of the uh, juvenile arthritic diseases that affects way more than just the, uh, the, the joints. It's really a systemic condition with a lymphadenopathy and hepatosplenomegaly. Um, then you have psoriatic uh, juvenile uh, arthritis, which is uh, asymmetric, typically in the DIPs, just like uh, psoriatic arthritis in the adults. Um, you have like dactylitis or that kind of sausage digit as well, painful uveitis on an eye exam. Um, the nails can uh, kind of develop a sort of a punctate uh, disfigurement. Um, uh, and then enthesitis, which is, um, it's related to like a juvenile idiopathic arthritis, um, but uh, you have a lot of uh, hip uh, and spine involvement. You uh, test it with the kind of shoulder lumbar, lumbar flexion test, um, and it's affecting boys more than girls. Um, again, uh, ortho bullets is going to be a huge resource for some of these, uh, just separate arthritic diseases yeah. that affect these kids. Um, but, uh, still, still testable for sure. Still good to know. Um, and definitely something that you can 
potentially point out it and save these kids from if you catch it early enough. But let's see, uh, you get a, a patient who's, they could, they could be 70, sure. Um, they love uh, red meat. They love drinking wine. Uh, they say that their big toe uh, commonly swells up. What's uh, that kind of arthropathy called uh, at, at, at like its core? Yeah, so that's going to be like that crystal deposition arthropathy, you know, and that's when you have these crystals are going to be um, deposited or formed in or around joints. And what you're just uh, particularly talking about is typically um, gout, or it can, it can be many other things, but that one is one of the classic presentations for gout, where you have monosodium urate crystals that are going to be deposited in, the, deposited in the joint. And when you look at it under a microscope, uh, under polarized light, uh, those crystals will be negatively bifringent and they'll be needle shaped. And um, how you treat gout, you know, you know, you can treat that with endomethacin. Um, you can also treat that with uh, colchicine for recurrence. Just know one of the side effects of colchicine is diarrhea. Um, uh, what are some of the other form? I mean, we just touched a little bit about gout or these kind of monosodium urate crystals uh, that are deposited in the joint, which we call gout. But what are some of the other different forms of uh, crystal deposition arthropathy? Yeah, you can. Uh, so there's gout and there's pseudo gout. Uh, which is um, these, uh, rather than monosodium urate crystals, uh, these are more of uh, like the calcium-based uh, crystals in the pseudo-gout. And um, just like you said, in gout, you have the negatively bifringent. In pseudo-gout, they are weakly positively bi uh, birefringent. Um, treated very similar. Uh, with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, you can try a like a Medrol dose pack uh, to help get rid of that acute inflammatory phase. And then uh, you can also do colchicine for recurrence, just like in gout. You have a calcium hydroxyapatite crystal deposition, which can be lead to destructive arthropathy in the knee and shoulder. Um, part of that is called like a Milwaukee shoulder, which is a deposition, but you also have uh, cuff tear arthropathy. Um, you can have tumoral calcinosis, uh, and then calcium oxalate deposition, which is, um, really due to metabolic abnormalities and renal insufficiency. And, um, these are birefringent by pyramidal crystals secondary, uh, to like a, a, like an oxalosis. Um, and again, when you see these sort of conditions, gout, pseudogout, calcium hydroxyapatite deposition, chondral calcinosis, and calcium oxalate deposition, check their renal function, um, just because a lot of this stuff is really metabolized through the renal pathway. And a lot of times uh, you can catch renal abnormalities and send them to a nephrologist. And, and hopefully that can also help with the treatment and prevention of these future uh, crystal deposition arthropathies from happening. Um, but yeah, that's, again, there's a bunch to cover. I imagine that gout and pseudo gout are the two you have to really worry about in terms of test taking. Uh, but uh, good to know the other forms of crystal deposition arthropathy for sure. 
Oh yeah. And um that is yet another episode of um of our basic science review uh going over. You know, I mean we touched on some good stuff. I don't know how much of this is going to be like super high yield or tested. And you know, some of the things like the rheumatoid drugs, I definitely know those when to start and stop. Um, you know, all these different medications like the IL-1, IL-6, the TNF-alpha inhibitors. I think those are all fair game and good things to know. Oh, as well sure. some of the other stuff that we that we covered. Um, so I think this is another another day down in basic science. We are uh, getting closer to being done with basic science. We are, I think we're about halfway there. Yeah. Uh, which, which should motivate or depress some people. One of the two. I don't know which one. Um, <laughs> but we will, uh, we will continue on with some more basic science in these uh in these upcoming episodes